Before you start this episode, this is just a reminder that History Hack does have a Patreon account and a Ko-fi account as well. You can either register to subscribe and throw us a few quid every month, or simply buy us enough caffeine to continue through to the next episode. Because frankly, we run on fumes most of the time. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. Uh, Lockie and I are firmly ensconced where we belong in the 20th century today, aren't we? But not quite. Well, sort of. It's not this the sort of if it, our wheelhouse is there. This is the maybe the shed next to the wheelhouse, or something, like, or maybe yeah. the driveway that the, the <laughs> things from the wheelhouse spill onto. Possibly, we are we are in twentieth century Germany, and we have with us Mark Jones, who is assistant professor of history at University College Dublin. Uh, he's among the leading English language historians of modern Germany. And he is very much a recognised authority on the Weimar Republic. And he's here today to talk about his new book, uh, 1923, The Forgotten Crisis in the Year of Hitler's Coup. Mark, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for thanks for having me on to talk about this subject. And it's it's nice that you say, are we in the 20th century? Um, that's a really good way to, to think about 1923. Um, I'm going to steal your first question in a way because I'm just thinking, you know, if we think of the 20th century as the age of extremes, and um, you know, one of the most important factors of that age of extremes is the battle between liberal democracy, communism or Bolshevism, and fascism. And 1923, if we're saying it's in the 20th century, is that point in time when, you know, Fascism has just taken over the state in Italy. So it's the first year when you have that battle between those three ideologies. And it's the first time that they kind of conflict with each other as to what's going to happen next. And as we know, the wider story is for the next 25 years after 1923, indeed for longer for the remainder of the century, it's the battleground between those three ideologies that defines what happens in 20th century Europe. So we, we are in the 20th century. Um, and, you know, and I, I kind of st- st- I was yeah, going to say, we are, are we starting a short twentieth century argument? Are we? I don't know, do we kick? When do we kick off the twentieth century? Nineteen seventy? Oh, maybe I don't know. All right, let's let's all right, let's let's get on topic. Nineteen twenty-three. Why is this such a seismic year across Europe? Then, um, fascist Italy. Mussolini's appointed prime minister in, in October nineteen twenty-two. So you've got the first time, if you're a nationalist ultra-nationalists on the political far right, you've got a model that you can copy, and that model is fascism. And so, you know, we would be talking about, about Hitler to, today, and we're, we're jumping, and, and, you know, Hitler and Hitler National Socialist Movement, which is small this time, its response to fascism in Italy is to say, we have a German Mussolini, his name is Adolf Hitler. So you've got the strongman model of what the leader of a fascist state should be for, for the first time. And you've got an example of how fascists took power. So the example of the uh, um, black shirt uh, is in in Italy going on the pun- what they call punitive expeditions, going to towns where the socialists are in power, beating up the socialists, stealing their flags, fighting over over you know the right to symbolically occupy a town centre or square or to desecrate. Uh, a monument to socialists, uh, to protect monuments to war, war veterans. All of that kind of, all of those low lying forms of violence that are so essential to what makes fascism uh, appealing to activists on the right are all there. And their script now has an endpoint. And the endpoint in the Italian case is the, uh, as Mussolini as, as prime minister. So Nazis have that as a model. And that's, 
there for the first time in the winter of 22, 23. And as I've said, they're calling Hitler, you know, is there. He's going to be the German Mussolini. Um, and so that's kind of one of the first things that makes this year different. The Bolshevik model has been there for extremists on the left since 1917, as we've, as, as you've mentioned, you know, it's there, it's present, it's a part, it's become a part of the uh, European political order, right? Remember in 1918, 1919, uh, you know, London and Paris think that they're going to win, the whites are going to win the civil war. Lenin is going to be a problem of the past. By 1922, they have accepted Lenin is there, uh, Lenin's regime is there to stay. So, you know, in, in Genoa, at the Genoa conference in the spring of 1922, it's the first time that Lloyd George and the British allow representatives of the Bolshevik state. Remember, a state that's committed ideologically to overthrowing the order of capitalism and sponsoring terrorism, uh, class-based terrorism in, in the views of, 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 uh, most supporters of capitalist, capitalism at that time in Western Europe, they're allowing the representatives of that state to attend an international conference for the first time in the spring of 1922. So you've got this flux of new ideas and energies coming to being and new problems that people maybe, uh, supporters of liberal democracy maybe hope would go away are suddenly all there and they're there to stay. So these examples of what to do if you're political, uh, if you're committed to radical political change are suddenly on the left or right are suddenly there in 1923. And, you know, the, the pause for a second. So that's what makes 1923 like a really big starting point for something new. Um, but it's also the ending point, which comes back to, you know, where is it in the 20th century? Because if we were going to answer that as an essay question, you know, or, or, or debate it, and you can debate it with me in a second if you disagree. It's the year that the First World War ends. So, you know, the First World War in Britain and France, we always learn, and I'll include Ireland here as well, you know, and, 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 and the United States too, and the English-speaking world, we always have learned the First World War ends with the armistice on the 11th hour of the 11th day in November, and then it for, formally ends with the Treaty of Versailles, uh, the, which is um, uh, signed in June 1919. So those are the big end points of the war. Now, once we expand our horizons beyond um, the victor nations, we see that the violence of the war continues uh, into the early 1920s. And, um, you know, it sees new forms of violence and worsened forms of violence taking place across vast territories of Central Eastern Europe. Uh, those territories are described as the shatter zones. And that's been described in my one of my colleague, Robert Gervartz, has written a book about that called The Vanquished, which is about that continuing uh, violence. Uh, it's a great book. I have to recommend it, not just because Robert's my senior colleague here in UCD, but it is genuinely a really, really great book. I completely um, second that, by the yeah, way. And, very and, yeah, absolutely. A lot of First World War historians now would be, be singing from the same hymn sheet saying, we've got to think about the war in the longer period, in those longer time frames to understand its, its, its legacy. And this brings us back to, well, if we know all of that, why do we need a book about Germany in 1923? Uh, and my argument to that is from a First World War perspective is that, you know, a lot of people in the public will argue that the Versailles Treaty is responsible for the failure of the Weimar Republic, the, down, uh, the failure of liberal democracy in Germany and for the rise of Hitler. But a lot of historians, probably a majority, will argue that that, that is, is the wrong take. Uh, they will say, well, actually, the Versailles Treaty, to put their arguments more uh, rather, rather as briefly as possible, They'll argue that it's uh, 
a living document which gives the potential for the international order in Europe to move in different directions and that it moves in the 1920s into an era of reconciliation between France and Germany, which is focused on 1925 on something called the Locarno Accords, which is a treaty between France and Germany in which they promise to never go to war with each other again. And the men behind that treaty received the Nobel Prize for Peace uh, that year. That's um, Aristide Brand in, in, in France and Gustav Stresemann in Germany. Uh, Stresemann gets onto the cover of Time magazine as being, you know, as a response to that as being, you know, the German leading Europe to peace. And that's the conventional argument. And what it forgets is that in 1923, international politics and the living document that is the Versailles Treaty goes in the other direction. It goes in the direction of punishing Germany uh, through the occupation, military occupation of the Ruhr district which is a French response to Germany's refusal to comply with France and Britain's demands for reparation. I say it's very important. It's a French response um, because uh, Britain doesn't agree to occupy the Ruhr district alongside the Germans. So you've got this unilateral action by the French with the support of the Belgians, I should say, but Belgians, with all respect to Belgium, is not a major power at this time, and it's largely following French direction. United States is pulled back. Uh, as we know, um, it's not playing a major role in European affairs at this time. There's an attitude in Washington in, in December 1922, which is we've got to let the Europeans burn out the flames of their conflicts before we can get seriously involved. So you've got this um, spiral of events all happening at once, a constellation of factors. You've got this bigger picture of at precisely the time when fascism is a model, communism is a model. The mobilization of the wartime has not come to an end, and France is doing something which is uh, which sta- which it has not has talked about doing since the, the, the summer of 1919, and has finally reached the point of doing it, which is to occupy the Ruhr and take control of the heartland of the German economy. And just for background information for listeners here who who are thinking, you know, their German geography lessons right now, and going, "Where's the Ruhr again?" So it's the, the district around Dortmund, Gelsenkirchen, the Ruhr River. And um, so if you think of, uh, you know, a couple of hundred kilometers to the north of Frankfurt, east of the River Rhine, uh, that's the Ruhr district. It's a heartland, it's a coal region. And at the turn of the 20th century, it's become the coal producing powerhouse of the German economy at this, at this time. As a consequence of the Versailles Treaty, the Rhineland, so the uh, the the, the uh, left bank of the Rhine is occupied by France, Britain, uh, Belgium, and the United States, um, as a part of the Versailles Treaty, in order to um, enforce the terms of the Versailles Treaty upon Germany, in order to enforce German compliance with with the uh, with with that treaty. Those occupation zones are different in size. The French is the largest. The British have the area around Cologne. And as the French get more and more annoyed, particularly Raymond Poincaré during the year 1922, he's the French equivalent of prime minister in 1922, as he gets more and more annoyed with Germany saying, we cannot pay the amount of reparations that you want, he orders his military in the summer to make plans to occupy the Ruhr. And then those plans are implemented in January. And so the military is sent in 
uh, initially the Germans think it's a couple of hundred thousand soldiers. It's actually in, in all about a hundred thousand soldiers who are sent in. And they accompany a small group of engineers whose job it is to investigate what Germany's capacity to pay is. And the capacity to pay that they're talking about is reparations in kind. So they're arguing the Treaty of Versailles demands uh, reparations and the reparations payments are, we mostly think of cash payments, but they're actually also include reparations in kind. So they're arguing you're not paying the coal, you're not, you're not handing over coal, you're not handing over uh, wood. Something you're not handing over trees that you have to to us, and therefore we're sending in, in this commission to examine what your actual capacity to pay is, and the soldiers are going in with them to protect them, and that of course creates a huge question, which is obviously as well, what exactly did the French want in January 1923 with this occupation, and how did France's goals change over the course of the year? And um, to make a long story short, as the conflict escalates. France's goals go from compliance with reparations to potentially wanting to occupy and gain the territory of the Ruhr to make it a part of France in the longer term, or to see a separation of the Rhineland from Germany, from the Weimar Republic itself. So in the German context in the spring of 1923, while you've got all of those broader issues that we've talked about up to now going on, you also have the question of, will the integrity of the Weimar Republic and the German state remain intact or will it lose its most important economic region, uh, co-producing region, the Ruhr district? This book then, so obviously there has to be um, a situation rife for like catastrophic change to happen. So things are not good in Germany in 1923. This book is intrinsically linked to the rise of Adolf Hitler. Who is he in 1923? We're all used to the image of him as a Führer, but what does he represent at this point? How popular is he? What do people think of him? How does he see himself? And what does he actually want, do we think? Uh, Those are great questions because, you know, one way of thinking about everything I've said up to now is why does all that matter? And one of the most important answers to that is this is the platform that makes Hitler. Uh, this is what transforms Hitler. And I think one way of thinking of, about it is if you pause history at different points in time. So in the summer of 1921, um, Matthias Erzberger, who signs the armistice on the German side in November 1918, he gets murdered and he's murdered by right wing and terrorists in Germany who who want to punish him for signing the Versailles Versailles Treaty. Uh, it's just, you know, and after his murder takes place, there's a, there's a, a, a large police investigation, a large investigation, and uh, in the the files buried away in an archive in in Freiburg in the southwest of Germany, you will find the police interviews with Hitler. In it took place in Munich in 1921, and. Hitler in Munich in 1921 is not part of the organization responsible for Erzberger's murder, but because of his reputation at that time, he gets interviewed by the police anyway, because they think his organization might be a part of it. So in the summer of 1921, those files, what they tell us is that Hitler uh, is the head of an organization with a large turnover of membership. There's a lot of people coming, joining and leaving, listening to speeches, leaving. The membership is in flux and it's small. And at those meetings, what those investigators draw from it is the reason that people thought that Erzberger was murdered by the Nazis was because at their meetings, they're constantly shouting, we've got to kill Erzberger. You know, he must hang. He must be punished. You know, and so when Hitler's speaking, someone might shout in the crowd, hang him and everybody would cheer. And so they they identify what we would call today 
verbal radicalism on a, within a fringe movement, but then they conclude in their investigation, but this movement didn't actually have any role in the violence that killed Erzberger. Move forward to the summer of 1922, that verbal radicalism is still there. Hitler is still a fringe movement, but he's getting bigger. The SA has started to become a thing. It's not yet taken the formal organization that later becomes, but you know the idea that his movement has squads that accompany their speakers is part of its uh, coming into being in the autumn of 1922. Um, it's still a small movement. By the end of the year 1922, it has about 8,000 members. And um, they're spread, they're in branches mainly in Bavaria. In the course of 1923, that number multiplies rapidly uh, as the crisis that in, uh, follows from the Ruhr occupation spreads. And by the eve of the putsch in November 1923, Hitler's movement has about 50,000 members. And um, thinking of one example of who he is, to come back to your, your question, um, his critics are starting to notice him too. And so really interesting uh, man, politician, uh, jurist, social, member of the Social Democratic Party, whose name is Alan Sanger. He, uh, who's, who's uh, mistaken as being a Jew by the Nazis, or the Nazis accuse him of being a Jew and they beat him up in the streets, um, but he, he's not actually Jewish. He starts writing about Hitler at this time and he writes about, you know, he, he says, look, listen to what this man says. He's a psychopath. That's his exact term. And the reason he says that is Hitler at this time is, is preaching a message of violence, a message of, you know, we've got to get our enemies, our internal enemies, the Social Democrats are worse than our foreign enemies, the French. The French, in other words, for Hitler, aren't the real enemy at this point in time, the spring of 1923, even though they've occupied the Ruhr. Hitler says the reason they're not the real enemy is because it's the Social Democrats and the Jews fault, the November criminals, as he calls them, that we're too weak to defend ourselves. Because at this time, Germany can't defend itself militarily against the French occupation. It only has an army of 100,000 men. Occupation of the Ruhr, I should say, because it only has an, an army of 100,000 men. So that's Sanger's analysis is look at Hitler. He's this psychopath preaching about killing people and getting people cheering for him and supporting him as a response to this. And um, another take, another, you know, for any historian of Germany in the Weimar Republic, you know, Jewish voices from this time provide fascinating insights into what's going on and, and who Hitler is. Uh, so the, the Jewish press, even though only 1% of the, the population of Germany at this time is, is Jewish, they have people going to Nazi meetings and writing about what's going on. And they record it as well. They speak about, you know, Hitler being this preacher of hatred, preacher of, of violence. A dangerous individual, but they acknowledge that he has a talent for leadership and a talent for speaking. And that's what's getting his movement followers. That's what's making his movement different to other movements at this time. That's why Hitler is the leader of a sect, effectively, that's becoming a political party and it's becoming known. And he's becoming much more effective as a leader. If you were to compare him with, you know, one example, so a, a political firebrand in North Bavaria in the autumn of 1922. Um, a female example, Andrea Ellent, she speaks the same message as the Nazis. She's a member of the Nazi party. Uh, she has a similar following of men who carry out her orders, who will uh, beat up her political opponents. Uh, she's blaming the Jews, Social Democrats, for Germany's ills. Uh, you know, she has a following of around 700 and. Um, in the autumn of 1922, when there's only 8,000 members of the Nazi party, that's a large following. 
but you know it's Hitler who of these firebrands has the ability to bring them all together behind his leadership and behind the idea that he's a German Mussolini. And that's what makes him different from the other speakers on the on the radical right in, in Germany in like late 1922 and across 1923. And um, I've spoken there about what makes him different to other political leaders. And um, what I think is important to say is how his supporters saw him at Medjugorje, they're creating the idea that he's a German Mussolini. This is really important to their to, to their to their mobilization, to their script in the spring of 1923. He himself, the question among historians is, does he himself believe himself to be uh, a German Mussolini? Does he himself believe that he is the future Fuhrer at this point? Or does he see himself as being a drummer who is trying to raise and rally support for the figure who will become the German saviour? And in some of the older literature on Hitler, some of the older biographies, it's put forward that uh, that he is a uh, he sees himself at this time as the drummer. Some more recent work um, suggests actually that's not the case. He's 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 presenting himself as being part of a wider wider uh, assault on on democracy, but he actually sees himself as the as the coming leader. I personally think, based on my reading of what he says and does during the year of 1923, that that's how he sees himself. That he very much sees the year as having the potential to end with him as the leader of the German state. And so it's very much Hitler's attempt to take power in the in the autumn that is that the ends up being the, the putsch that we think of as a you know the beer hole putsch kind of farcical putsch. It only lasts 20 hours. And um, but behind it there is a, a really incredibly serious threat to the existence of Weimar democracy. So I mean I, one thing that kind of maybe people particularly in the anglophone world don't quite get i think from this this time is just how much political violence comes home um you know or how much the violence from the from the front comes home as well you know we when we go through the incredibly violent revolution of 1918 and, and 1919 and you know tanks on the streets in berlin and stuff like that and then the normalization of political murder the context is so different to 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 us even though even though you know, um, people come where men principally come home with desensitization of violence and PTSD in, in you know, Britain and the Anglophone world. It's, they mobilized so much more of their population, didn't they, Germany? And it's just that much worse. Anyway, um, it's all fascinating. I mean, let's, I mean, Hitler's first victory, where does that come in? He's trying to claim ownership of the most active veterans groups, trying to get them to support him. And in January 1923, he brings all this together in a party conference. Now, it's important here when we think of the Nazi regime from 1935 onwards, we think of the Nuremberg rallies, you know, the mass mobilization of hundreds of thousands of people going to Nuremberg to participate in the Nuremberg rallies. We think of Leni Reifenstahl's film, The Triumph of the Will. Um, what we're talking about in January 1923, and when it was Hitler's first, first victory, is the birth point of that political mobilization around the party rally. It's on a much smaller scale. It takes place in Munich. And the reason it's a, a, a victory for Hitler is Hitler is an outright opponent of the democratic political order in Germany. In the summer of 1922, Walter Rathenau, uh, the German foreign minister who is Jewish, is murdered by the same organization, right-wing terrorists, that murdered Matthias Erzberger a year earlier. And unlike the aftermath to Erzberger's murder, which is 
critical in terms of, uh, you know, there's a democratic, pro-democratic response that criticizes the murderers. After Rathenau's murder, there is a political response from the state that includes the introduction of something called the law for the protection of the republic, which is a set of laws to give supporters of democracy uh, the chance to prosecute their enemies, to make it illegal to call for verbal, to verbally call for violence against the republic, to make it illegal to insult, to insult the flag of the republic, to remove the flag, to, to prosecute attempts and conspiracies against the republic's leaders. It's basically a set of laws that we would today consider to be like anti-terrorism laws of the kind that are introduced uh, or were introduced after terrorist attacks in, in the 1990s, 2000s. Um, and so those laws are introduced, but they lead to a legal conflict between um, Prussia, which is uh, and, and the government of the, of the Republic as a whole in Berlin and the government of Bavaria in the south, which is uh, is much more conservative. It's, and it opposes the, in, in the, the implementation of the law for the protection of the Republic on Bavarian territory, which makes Bavaria the uh, center point of anti-Republican conspiracy uh, at this time, which is one of the reasons why Munich is a city of tremendous importance for the rise of, of Nazism. And, but even though the rulers of Bavaria are rejecting the law for the protection of the Republic, they still recognize the degree to which Hitler is a threat uh, to the political order at that time in January 1923. And so when the Nazis decide to organize their party conference in Munich, it's initially banned. It's banned because it's seen as being a, a threat to public order. And when Hitler learns of the ban, and we've got a, uh, we've got great, great accounts of how this happens, he, he flips out. He, uh, he is the Hitler of the, of, of our caricatures of Hitler losing his temper, going mad screaming and ranting and raving and threatening to get everybody who stands in his way. That's his response. And he does that to the head of police in Bavaria, in Munich. And the head of police should have actually had him arrested on the spot for, for threatening. Uh, he's threatening sedition. He's threatening violence. You know, he is, you know, he's talking to the, to, to the head of police as if that man has no authority whatsoever. And, um, but instead of having him arrested, he agrees to listen to Hitler's message and to allow Hitler to speak to one of his superiors. And then one of Hitler's superiors, Bavarian Minister of Justice, uh, with the support of connections in the in in the Bavarian army, uh, including um, Ernst Rome, who's later murdered in the Rome Putsch, uh, the Putsch, uh, the, the uh, what they call the Rome Putsch, you know, we we call uh, you know, the, or what's later called um, the Night of the Long Knives at the start of the Third Reich. He uses his contacts to get the decision to ban Hitler's um, conference overturned. And then it takes place. And so that's the first part of that victory for Hitler in that he can threaten the state, stand up to it. And because of his popularity and his connections, he's able to outflank and outmaneuver his critics from a legal perspective. He's able to have his party conference. But also it's a success for Hitler because when the party conference takes place, the violence that his critics have said is going to happen when the Nazis have their conference doesn't happen. It passes off without any major act of violence. The police of Bavaria, uh, Munich's chief of police after, in the aftermath of the event is saying the nights of the party conference for us were like a normal night. We had extra men ready to intervene in the case of violence on the streets, in the case of attacks against socialists, in the case of any more, more uh, threatening attacks. 
we were ready, but we didn't have to do anything. And so that's a victory in terms of how it makes people who aren't outright Nazis at the time in Munich, let's call them the respectable bourgeoisie who share Hitler's goals of not liking the not liking the Republic and being uh, against its existence. But it makes it, it mean, makes it easier for them in the aftermath to say what the critics are saying about Hitler is not true. His movement has had a conference. It's had men marching in the streets. Marches that were initially to be banned have taken place and they've taken place without bloodletting, without loss of life, without, as we spoke about a few moments ago, without the need for tanks in the street, without the kind of violence that takes place in the revolution of 1918, 1919, uh, without the kind of mass violence that takes place in Munich in, in, in May 1919, when uh, there's a bloodletting in, in the streets of Munich um, during what the, the, the suppression of the Munich Council's Republic. And I should just as a kind of really important footnote, drop it in there. It's really important that we remember that, you know, over a thousand people are killed in Munich at the, in the last week, in the f- first week of May, 1919. So when Hitler's talking in 1923 about hanging Jews from the, the street lamps and about killing his opponents, he's talking to a city that has that memory of, of exceptional mass violence only a few years back. So there's a certain, um, you know, there's a, it's not just a rhetoric of violence. It's a rhetoric of violence in a context with a memory of violence, which makes it all the more uh, dangerous and threatening. I think as well. So this leads us on, really, doesn't it? How is all this affecting your average German? Because that, as well as this turmoil, they've got to cope with things like catastrophic inflation. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you, 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 we've the story of Munich and, and the, the stage for Hitler's um, expansion for the growth and his popularity of his movement on the, in the streets of Munich within a wider context that's... Uh, powered by the Ruhr occupation, because as I said, the Ruhr is occupied in, in January and the Germans have a response. The German state has to respond to this, you know, potentially losing its most important economic region to France. It's something that Weimar democracy has to respond to. And so the response is it can't be militarily because they're too weak to fight back militarily. So they respond to something called passive resistance and passive resistance basically calls on the workers of the Ruhr to go on strike. And to, uh, to fund passive resistance, um, German side starts printing money to pay workers not to work. And so it's that's the origins of what becomes the hyperinflation in the summer of 1923. Now, Germany is already in a situation of incredible inflation by the end of 1922 because of the decade of inflation from 19, it begins in 1914 and ends. Uh, in, in, in uh, late 1923 and early 1924. But in the spring of 1923, the German Reichsbank president, um, von Havenstein and, um, the leaders of the Republic decide this is a risk we have to take. We know it's going to cause inflation. We know it's going to damage our currency, 
but we cannot give up the Ruhr without without a fight, and we have to fund that fight through printing money. It's the it's you know when you have a series of bad decisions to choose from, they think this is the the the, the least bad option. And the initial bet in January, when they start the policy, is that the Ruhr occupation and the Ruhr crisis will be over quickly. And so they argue that they can manage the situation and the damage that will come um, by spending Germany's gold reserves uh, in order to maintain some kind of international uh, trade value, value of the Reichsmark uh, for international international trade. And one of the reasons that they think they can do that is during the First World War, one of the German state's responses to finance the challenge of how to finance the war is to hoard gold. So they've got more gold and precious metals than at any time. And this is also one of the reasons, coming back to the French and British side, one of the reasons why they're annoyed with the Germans not paying reparations to the level that they want in the second half of 1922. And the Germans are claiming we can't pay reparations, our, our economy is in danger, and our currency is in freefall. Uh, the the response of someone like John Maynard Keynes looking at that situation is to say, hang on a second. And, you know, I don't know if Keynes would say, hang on a second there, lads, but hang on a second there. You've got more gold and precious metals than you've ever had in your central bank, and you're not spending them to improve the value of your currency. So, you know, we don't believe you that your economy is on its knees. You've got the measures to fix your, fix your, um, the value of your currency, and you're not using, them, you're not using them because it's a political decision. And the reason they're not using them, the German response to that is we're not using them because if we spend all that money to prop up our currency, the French might occupy us anyway and destroy the value of our input. So that's the, the, the problem. And then so they start spending that money in the spring and then they run out in the early summer. And when they run out, they can't prop up the value of their currency at all. And that's when the hyperinflation uh, goes crazy. That's when you sit down and order coffee and you have to pay tens of millions for it or billions or at the end, trillions, that's when the price of the coffee during the time it takes to drink it jumps from being 10, you know, 10 million to 20 uh, million over the course of the time you're sitting there. And that's what's happening across the economy in the summer. And so you've got this modern state, which is full of promise. The Republic is promising a new beginning in 1919 when it comes into being. And suddenly in the summer of 1923, Germans are looking at that situation saying, how on earth did we get here? We've got a, we, we've got no functioning currency. Uh, we've got no coal because our miners are on strike to passively resist the occupation. We're facing into winter discontent. If you're a farmer, you're not. What, what's a farmer going to do in this situation? Keep the food. Exactly. Are you going to sell <laughs> food? Giving it away. Are you going to get? Are you are you going to sell food for money that's going to be worthless in two hours? In two days? No, no of course it. not. So you've got this. You're got we'll your trade your, it. Or sell it and well, like this is the thing. So city dwellers are saying, well, those farmers are making loads of money. They're buying grand pianos. They're buying oriental rugs. They're profiteering. They're, you know, screwing us over. And so you've got this, you know, radicalization of social division that's already present in Weimar Germany and in most societies. It's becoming worse. That radicalization and that social tension is getting worse. Those who have food, those who don't, those who can afford heating, those who can't. And certain sections of society are, are, are um, being affected much worse. So the urban poor is being affected worse. Um, uh, city dwellers, women also suffering more, people on fixed incomes, pensioners are suffering extremely because if you have a fixed income in a time of hyperinflation, you're in re uh, real difficulty. Um, workers, not as bad as other sections of society because the unions are so powerful enough 
to have wages fixed with inflation. So their wages are going up, not fast enough to keep up with inflation, but they're still going up to a degree. And by the summer, this results in a wave of strikes and riots in late July and August called the Kuno strikes. They result in more deaths than, for example, the January uprising in 1919 in Berlin, which is much better known. And what's happening is people are getting their paycheck and they realize there's nothing to buy and they're rioting. Uh, and so those writings are bringing Germany to the edge of the edge of the edge of the cliff in the autumn of 1923. And the question is, what's going to happen next? It's, I don't know. It just reminds me of 1918. I dare say it reminded some of them of 1918 as well. And the, and the shortage of food and accusations of profiteering farmers and black markets and and, and stuff like that. I, yeah. So where does that leave the political leadership then as we as we progress into autumn? Um, time time must be ticking on the on the Weimar leadership, surely. So, yeah, I think, you know, you're right. I think probably the group for whom it reminds me of 1918 most is probably the communist leadership because they look at the situation and they think this is it. This is the chance. Um, so in the book, I talk about mm-hmm. now or never moments. You know, so they look at the situation and they say, well, you know, Lenin faced this moment. He knew it was time now or never. We strike now, we seize power. If we don't do it now, we'll never do it. So for them, the Kuno strikes are a surge moment. You know, let's get ready. It's time. And they make, start making plans for something called what they call German October. So basically based on the October revolutions myths from 1917. And they're, they're getting ready for a communist power seizure. And their strong point for that is a place called Saxony, uh, also a state beside Saxony called Thuringen. And to make matters more complicated, Thuringen and Saxony are the geographical region of Germany between liberal democratic, social democratic ruled Prussia and conservative Bavaria. In other words, if Hitler's going to imitate Mussolini and march on Berlin, starting his march in Munich, he's going to have to pass through these two. Um, effectively what we'll call red states, um, which means in those states they can argue that they're arming workers to prepare them to protect German democracy against a march north from the uh, wannabe fascists, which is actually a term they use to describe the Nazis in, in 1923. Uh, they're arming them to protect the democracy against a march north from the wannabe fascists starting in Bavaria, while their critics are saying, no, you're arming the workers in those states because you're getting ready yourselves to use the turmoil created by the threat posed by Hitler and by the conditions more generally to launch a communist-inspired power Caesar in in the state. So that's one moment of crisis. In the Rhineland, with the support of the French, you've got Rhineland separatists who are getting armed and getting ready to launch their attempt to seize and create a new independent state uh, uh, that will make them a republic of the Rhineland uh, in, in, on, in, on paper independent, but obviously really a client state of France, which again puts the territorial integrity of the German uh, Weimar Republic at, at stake. And then you've got the fascists who are looking at the chance and saying, we can seize power uh, in this moment. Our time has come. Um, Hitler's been preaching about the need to seize power violently all year. So at a certain point, a populist leader who preaches that kind of mobilization either has to step up to the plate and try it, or they lose credibility because the movement is all about momentum and the momentum has been with Hitler for most of the year, but eventually that momentum will run out if he doesn't try and seize, seize power. So you've got all those crises happening from the opponents of the state 
and the state leadership at this point changes hands because Kuno, who's been the Chancellor of Germany since uh, the, the, the start of the winter in, in November, December 22, he resigns in August and he's replaced by Gustav Stresemann. And Stresemann is then Chancellor for about 100 days. And during those 100 days, um, he fights off political criticism from the right within his own party, which is accused of him of being too weak and collaborating or cooperating with the left. Uh, he brings together a grand coalition, including the SPD, and he recognizes the need to end the policy of passive resistance and to introduce a new currency uh, and to untangle the spiral of crises that are pushing Germany to the edge. And that's his achievement um, in the space of that 100 days as effectively the Chancellor Crisis Manager and um, champion of, uh, let's say, simply 20th century Germany. Uh, because, you know, faced with all these obstacles, looking at the worsening food situation, looking at the food food crisis, fearing that Germany is going to face famine. And it's worth pointing out that like, children are starving at this point in the in the in the autumn. And the winter is going to be worse. Looking at those situations, you know, the Quakers are feeding um, through soup kitchens, are keeping, you know, hundreds of thousands of Germans alive at this time. International aid is really important. Um, And he looks at that situation because we have to end this policy. And so the question really is when. And when he becomes Chancellor at the start of August, and this brings the the British back into the story, um, he knows he has to end the policy of passive resistance immediately, but he doesn't do it because he thinks that the British are about to do an about turn on their policy of supporting, not enthusiastically, it must be said, perhaps actually tolerating is a better word. They're going to do a U-turn on tolerating the French action against Germany in the Ruhr. And that's what happens. Uh, um, British Foreign Secretary Lord Curzon gives a monumental, uh, a massively important speech at the time where he says the occupation of the Ruhr by France is illegal. And Germany has been arguing that since the very start of the occupation. So suddenly Stresemann and his cabinet are looking at the situation and they're saying, time is running out for us. We need to reverse the policy of passive resistance and sort out our currency and prevent catastrophe. But they're also saying, but the international arena has just dangled a massive carrot in front of us. And that carrot is that the British might back away from the French. And if they do that, a whole series of fantasy scenarios open up for the German government, including the possibility that this disagreement between Britain and France over what to do about the Ruhr could eventually end in a British-German alliance. Okay, that's not as far-fetched as it sounds, because uh, because the British themselves are getting under pressure from um, other European countries. Uh, and from the dominions, everybody's looking at them saying, Germany and France are fighting over the Ruhr and over reparations. They're, they've dragged the German economy down. It's not going to be too much longer before they drag the French economy down too. And that happens in 1924, by the way, is one of the consequences of this uh, action is that it's, it ends up being an economic disaster for France too. And so they're looking at them and saying, well, we're dragging Europe. Europe is being dragged down. It's time for Britain to show leadership and put an end to this crisis. And so for Stresemann in, 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 in August and September, he cannot end the passive resistance uh, campaign, although it's weakened in the Ruhr itself, and he cannot end the printing of new money to finance it because he's waiting for a British decision. And this is one of the points where, you know, one of the curious 
things in history at this time is, you know, you, you can imagine if this was today, there'd be an international summit every day. Uh, but at this time, you know, it's August and, you know, British Prime Minister, he goes on holidays uh, after after the speech. He leaves it for another another two weeks. He goes on holidays to France and on his way back from France, he stops in Paris. Fast forwarding the story a little bit. Uh, and on the 26th of September, he meets the French uh, Prime Minister Poincaré in Paris and they issue a, a statement saying that they've reached agreement on what to do with the Ruhr. And that's the point where Stresemann says, OK, bingo, we can wait no longer. Britain is not coming over to our side. They're with the French. We've got to end passive resistance. We've got to effectively surrender the Ruhr campaign, whatever it costs. Stability is more important than anything else right now. And in this moment, French Prime Minister Raymond Poincaré, um, in the moment of victory, after nine months of being determined to hold out for longer against, um, against the Germans in the Ruhr, he effectively wastes his victory um, because he pushes for a more aggressive solution and he pushes the Rhineland separatism issue to a point whereby the British come within a few weeks of reaching of saying they've agreement with the French. They come much more strongly, much more aggressively and say, you will not disband the territory of the German Reich without the support of the German Reichstag, which is never going to come which effectively says to the French, hold your fire in the Ruhr. And by the time that happens, France is in a weaker position. And at that point, Poincaré is, accepts the pressure of the Americans and British to create um, committees of experts to rule on Germany's capacity to pay reparations. And those committees of experts are led by technocrats, one of whom is Charles Dawes, who's an American banker, and his name is given to the financial plan that's called the Dawes Plan, which comes into being in 1924, which solves the reparations issue for the next five years. One of his uh, committee members is Owen Young. And in 1929, Owen Young leads what becomes the next reparations plan, the Young Plan. And so that is the basis for economic stability in, uh, in interwar Europe from 1924 onwards. Against that backdrop, then you've got more kind of worrying signs for the future, um, don't we? Uh, there is a chapter in the book called "Taking It Out on the Jews," and you know we we know that um, Jews and socialists were, were scapegoated heavily in the in the years following the First World War for German defeat. So, what worrying precedents are we seeing by the end of nineteen twenty three? Yeah, it's it's um, it's it's really interesting when we you know. When we try and explain account for anti-Semitism in, in Germany in in the 1920s and 30s, you have two kind of, I think, ways of, of looking at it. One is the language of anti-Semitism, and it's, you know, someone like Hitler calling out, it's time to hang the Jews, you know, they're to blame for everything. And, and you know, one of Hitler's um, allies, one of the editors of the Volkischer Bill Bachter, the racial observer, the Nazi newspaper, he even says in, in the, the the spring of 1923, here's one way that we can that we can um, solve the problem of the Ruhr crisis. And let's issue an order to 50,000 Jews in Germany, telling them that they have to turn up at what he calls an assembly point with clothing and fooding for a few days. And then we'll put them into a camp. And he uses the term camp. And he says, and once we do that, we'll tell the French. If they don't remove their soldiers from the Ruhr, we'll murder these 50,000 people. That's verbal radicalism. That's part of the Nazi uh, regime's 
uh, Nazi regime, excuse me, uh, um, uh, Nazi ideology and script at this time in 1923. So that's the kind of verbal practice, the verbal calls for violence that are there at this point in time. And that is part of the radicalization of anti-Semitism that takes place since the end of the First World War. Um, and alongside it, the question, I think, both for historians of Weimar and also more generally for um, people thinking about the relationship between verbal calls for violence and acts of violence, where they're taking place in, uh, uh, where they're taking place in, or wherever they're taking place in the world today, you have alongside that, you have physical acts of violence on the part of anti-Semites. And so in the book, uh, in the chapter, as you say, called Taking It Out on the Jews, uh, you see how in the autumn of 1923, those two trends merge with, uh, with you know, more frequent, more aggressive, uh, more dangerous attacks, acts of violence against uh, Jewish um, uh, citizens of Germany and against Jewish migrants into Germany who've come into Germany fleeing the, the, the conditions that have emerged in the territories that were part of the Russian Empire. So you've got migrants are blamed, basically Jewish migrants to Germany who are refugees, we call them today, who are fleeing the Russian Civil War, who've come to places like Munich in 19, uh, from 1914 to 1920, they're being blamed for profiting from the crisis in 1923. And so at one level, um, what follows is um, state deportation of Jews. That happens in Bavaria in the autumn of 1923. Gustav Ritter von Kahr, who is uh, appointed as um, effectively dictator of Bavaria in response to the crisis. He tries to outflank Hitler, although he shares a lot of goals with him, by uh, persecuting uh, Jewish uh, migrants to Munich and by persecuting Jewish citizens, uh, Jewish German citizens of, of Bavaria who have been in, in Munich for generations. And he starts to round some of them up and deport them. That's one kind of way in which the first, and, and that's, it has support. That's why he's doing it. Uh, and it's one of the ways that frustrations are uh, that have been built up over this time on the part of those who feel they're losing uh, as a result of the crisis are are taken out on on, on the juice and, and so that's one level of the state at the level of the SA or paramilitary organizations supported of Hitler it's it's um they don't have the cloak of the state and they don't have the cloak of legality of what they're doing they're simply finding Jews and beating them beating them up and so one of the cases I write about in the book is the case of the Gutzmann brothers, it's two Jewish brothers. Uh, they're the only Jewish family left in their village in North Bavaria, near the border of Bavaria and Thuringen. And at night, you know, the still silence of a village at night uh, is broken by the sounds of men singing, drunk, and they're on their way. They surround that house, they haul them out of the house, uh, they claim that they are there, uh, you know, some of them enter the house claiming to rob what they believe to be theirs, and they, they bring those two village uh, men to the edge of the village where they stage a mock trial, which ends with them um, beating the two brothers uh, very, very badly and leaving them um, uh, for dead. Um, but they, they end up uh, not being not killed and then end up moving, being able to recover, walk, walk to the next village eventually and find rescue. So you've got Isolated incidents like that taking place across Germany. It's one of maybe one of the more extreme ones, but you have got a, a sufficient number of incidents like that taking place in rural, smaller communities where Jews are being beaten up. Um, 
and where the message is very clear, you are not welcome in this town anymore. And that actually leads to a um, process of movement of where Jewish populations live in early Weimar. Um, we think, you know, in the 1930s of Jewish uh, people moving in Germany from small communities to be part of bigger Jewish communities in the cities to kind of protect them a little bit from the regime. We don't think of that as being something that happens in, in Weimar in 1923, uh, but it is happening. In the cities, you get in Berlin, you get the biggest pogrom in uh, Germany before uh, the Nazis come to power in on the 5th and 6th of November uh, 1923, a set of riots in a district that is at the eastern end of Unterden Linden and is associated with the urban poor and associated with migrants from Eastern Europe. And mob violence breaks out there against the Jews. Jews are blamed for hoarding money. That's the trigger point uh, for it. And it leads to two days of rioting, which sees um, people being beaten up. Uh, it sees forms and spectacles of violence taking place, one of which is something called the um, strip commandos. That's a translation from the German term. And what that actually was, was groups of anti-Semites finding a Jewish person in a public space, surrounding them, hitting them, tearing their clothes off them, and then chasing them while they ran naked through the streets. And so it's a demonstration of power. It's a humiliation. It's a practice of humiliation. It's a message about belonging. And it's a horrendous message if you are a, a Jewish migrant to Germany or a German, Jew, a German of, of Jewish descent. It's a message you don't belong here. Now, in response to this, um, the Jewish population of Berlin don't stay um, idle, obviously. You know, I've mentioned before earlier on, I talked about how, you know, you can read really chilling and exceptionally clear analytical accounts of what Nazism is from 1923, written by German Jewish witnesses to these events. But also um, the Ger German Jewish front soldiers have an organization called the Association of German Jewish Front Soldiers. And they had actually, and this is telling, they actually had plans in place for what they would do in the case of anti-Semitic rioting in Berlin before it happened. So when it happened, they mobilized their members and they rushed to the area of, of Berlin where it's taking place. These are veterans of the First World War. Uh, they're ready to try and protect Jewish businesses. They're the equivalent of the Social Democratic Protection Unit, which had created in Munich to protect Social Democratic members from attacks from the Nazis. Um, they're rushed, they rush to the scene to try and protect their members. And when the police come, eventually the police response is slow. Uh, they arrest these men. So you get these accounts of groups of Jewish veterans of the First World War going to try and protect um, Jews on the streets of Germany from anti-Semitic violence and then being arrested by the, uh, 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 by the police. Um, and there is a learning from that at the level of the state. Some of the police officers are actually dismissed for this in trials in 1924. So it's not as one-sided a story as maybe people would think, um, but it is a part of what happens as part of what makes um, the wider picture of radicalization in Germany so important because, you know, we haven't talked about the putsch at all, um, which is, you know, uh, Notable that so much happens in 1923 that we can't even get to the, the putsch events in, in November. And um, but there is a, a chapter in, in the book on, on them too. But what I want to stress is that the leadership of the putsch, uh, a really forgotten document that's really important, uh, 
one of Hitler's closest advisors walking beside him who shot dead at the, at the end of the putsch has a document in his pocket, which is going to be the constitutional document of the Nazi regime if it comes to power. And it includes multiple fantasies of violence against all of the regime's enemies. It includes a pseudo-legal justification for executing everybody who's benefited from the Weimar Republic since the, the revolution in Bavaria and on the 8th of November 1923. You know, it talks about creating camps. It talks about executing Germans who help Jews. It has mass, it has like, you know, the capacity to evolve into acts of mass violence. This is very much part of what's on their mind at this time. And I think this the, brings us to the to the question of why Stresemann's actions and others are so important in 1923, because thanks to their victory, we can't actually answer the question is what would have become of those Nazis' fantasies had they achieved power in November 1923, because as we know, they're defeated. Well, I think that's... You're dead right in the sense that we, we haven't got time to go into the putsch, because <laughs> uh, uh, and, and really we are still just scratching the surface with all of this. I mean, for for, for everything that we've discussed, the the actions of 1923 were not decisive in a sense. Um, I guess because you know Strasman's reforms do come in and there is a recovery and the putsch fails, uh, of course. So so on the face of it. The actions of 1923, you could see why they would become the forgotten um, actions because they don't lead directly to Nazi power necessarily. So if we could sum up in maybe a couple of key points what you think the legacy of 1923 is and just how important 1923 uh, is in what's to come, what would you what would you pick? That's, that's the question, isn't it? How does what happens in 1923 act as a vehicle or a uh, you know, a starting point for what happens in 1933 or even 1941, 42. Um, and I think a lot of historians will argue that, you know, there's a pathway from 23 to 33, right? It's the birth of the Hitler movement. Thomas Mann in 1942 in American exile. And um, he says, you know, the, the, he writes about, you know, the, the and it's interesting he says it because he says it's a woman, um, woman in the market screaming the price of goods. The madness of the prices leads directly to the madness of the of the Third Reich. And that's kind of an, an older interpretation. I think, you know, what you see in 23 is you see this battleground, as I said at the start, between ideas of liberal democracy, uh, ideas of Bolshevik communism and ideas of national socialism competing with each other to try to define what Germany should be. And if because we know what happens in 1933, we usually tend to say this year is a pathway from 23 to 33. And in doing so, we actually almost follow the script that the Nazis themselves used from 1933 onwards when they celebrate the anniversary of the Putsch as one of their great um, uh, festival days in the Third Reich. The 9th of November is, for them, uh, both the, 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 the festival to condemn the November Revolution of, the, of, of 1918, but also to celebrate the blood of the martyrs of... of, of um, the 9th of November 1923. That's really important to, to the Nazi movement. In 1935, they even exhume the bodies of their martyrs and rebury them in central Munich in a massive ceremony that takes place over two days. So that is one way of looking at it. But I think the, the significance historically is actually when we pause 23, we, at the end of 23, we realized Germany faced all of these crises. Weimar democracy faced all of these crises. 
the story should end with the collapse of the Weimar Republic, shouldn't it? You know, it's a state that has delivered no currency. It's it's almost losing the Ruhr district. Um, you've got separatism. You've got putschists. You know, in the age of extremes, it should end with the victory of one of the extremes. But it doesn't. It ends with the victory of liberal democracy. Now, some people say well, it's only a partial it's only a partial victory, and you know it only lasts for less than a decade. Uh, and that's those are fair points. But I think this is really the significance of this crisis year and the study of the crisis year. And what we're studying in depth today is because you look at what happens in a time of crisis, and you can see how those who want to save and support the democracy act in its defence against all of the pressures that it's facing, how they mobilise their supporters. How somebody like Stresemann, who's not really a convinced Democrat during the First World War, to put it mildly, uh, can still use the rhetoric of democracy being the best form of government during the crisis year of 1923 to support that system. That's why I think the lessons of the book and the echoes that it speaks to today are really, really important. And both from a contemporary point of view about what's going on in the world now, but also maybe for those of us who are also like super history geeks who, you know, are just interested in the historical analysis of it, because we think of Weimar Germany as being a weak democracy. We think of Germany as not really being, you know, a country you think of as having a very strong democratic tradition in the second half of the 19th and first half of the 20th century. You know, you're not really going to say the Germans are the prize winning Democrats, are you, in any, in any, in any forum? And um, with good reason, obviously. But when you look at all of those things together, you can still say, actually, hold on, there must have been some powerful forces behind democracy in Germany in 1923, if it's able to survive all of those crises and come out the other side. And perhaps the question for those of us trying to understand where Nazism comes from and how the Republic ends up not being a stable democracy for years the question is perhaps what happens between 1923 and 1933 that undermines the achievements of, of those who can save the democracy in 23 to make it impossible for them to save the democracy in 32 slash 33. And that's where the lowering of the microscope becomes really interesting because you can see how all those processes start at a level that you maybe can't see when you read kind of, you know, the classic surveys of 20th century Europe that cover the events of 1923 in you know, one or two paragraphs. Whereas as you've heard now in the time we've been speaking, you know, we, we've got so much to say about this small period of time, which I think is why we, why, why it's worth writing a book about it. Uh, and on that note, your book's not out yet, is it? Is it next month? It's uh, the 25th of May in the UK and late August in the United States. Okay. So if anyone wants to buy me a birthday present, that's uh that'll do fine no it's been a real pleasure we, we, we're scratching the surface with this absolutely fascinating piece of piece well, period in history and it sounds like your book does a great job in in going further um if you think you know the rise of the nazis i think you need this in your life uh, it's been a pleasure having you on mark hopefully see you again thank you so much it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, 
You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.